0: poking around small little towns and coming across treasures from our history, like Old Tom's Cabin uh, on the banks of the river, just near Siam. And uh, it's not too far from the old church that you've probably seen if you've driven through town. It's been here since the turn of last century, built just after 1900 sometime in the uh old pioneer fashion and uh old tom lived here his entire life apparently and died in 1980 something i read on the sign and i love i love these old buildings i i love seeing the old churches i love seeing old places like this um there's something about them that I find attractive, something that I I think connects with sort of that nostalgic part of me. And, and they're beautiful in their own way. I'm intrigued by them, but yet I also find them a little sad. It's just an empty house now and a, a relic of the past. But once upon a time, it was someone's home. And someone lived out their life here, their family. They looked out on the river over there. They... They walked to get their local produce or grew it on the grass here beside us. But all that's gone now. It's just a symbol of something that used to be. I wonder that sometimes, at least in broader society, that religion isn't thought of the same way. It's uh, something nostalgic, something that people like to look at, like to think about even, but it's a relic of some bygone era, uh, an empty shell now for a lot of people. How do we make sense of religion? It's had a pretty long and checkered past, really, the word at has at least. Um, I think, you know, to be a religious person once upon a time would have been considered to have been a mark of honour you would have been looked up to uh, thought of as being a a decent person in society but well that's changed hasn't it now to be a religious person is seen to have been viewed with a sense of suspicion a sense of peculiarity even Christians are distancing themselves from the word religion or religious and so uh, into our vocabulary in recent times has become quite common now to hear Christians saying you know I'm uh, I'm not religious Uh, I have a relationship or Christianity is not about religion it's about relationship and so we've we've distanced ourselves from this word religion or religious I wonder how we make sense of religion I guess if we tried to define it maybe it would help, there's so many different understandings of it so at least for our considerations today I think it would be worthwhile if I gave you what I mean when I use the word religion or religious and most broadly, it could be uh, stated as having a, a particular system of faith and worship. A particular system of faith and worship. But, but I would add to that, that's a very broad definition, I would, I would add to a particular system of faith and worship that it's a belief system which defines how man relates to God. I only really want to restrict my considerations to how we think about religion or that term religious, uh, probably from a Christian worldview or a, a Western worldview. We don't have time available to us this morning to try and unpack, you know, world religions or how people all around the world view and think about religion, but how do we think about religion? How should we this morning make sense of religion? I think Solomon, as we continue our series through the book of Ecclesiastes, I think Solomon's going to give us some real um, food for thought, at least, right, about how we should consider, how we should think about religion and religious activity. So let's start here. I, I think it'd be good to try and broadly categorized two ways that I've found at least in my experience that people tend to approach religion uh, to a significant degree there are two very broad approaches to understanding religion that is you know our particular system of faith and worship um, which defines how man and God relate to one another and um, I think I think these are, are pretty indicative. I think they they indicate where a lot of people sit today, where a lot of people view religion. And I'm not even going to draw a distinction, particularly between you know unchurched people and churched people, because I think what you're going to find is that some of the prevailing attitudes about religion that exist in the world in general have pervaded even the pews that we normally sit on. And so the understandings of religion that you experience more broadly in society are also found within the church. Should flick a coin if I had one. Which one should we go for first? Um, I'll just start with, what must God do for me? This is the first attitude. What must God do for me uh, the type of mindset that um, that heart 's posture I think in life that leads me to ask that type of question what must God do for me? What can God do for me I think it's it 's deeply revealing, right about what I think of God, what I think of myself even or Um, how man and God sort of fundamentally relate to one another. Um, That question, what must God do for me, reveals an attitude where my understanding of faith and worship and how man and God relate to one another is, is primarily ordered by what God will provide me with. That's the fundamental question that drives my understanding of religion is what must God provide me with? And while most people would fall short of describing their relationship with God in these terms, many people, even Christians, approach God as though He were some type of spiritual genie, um, someone to grant wishes. So, so the way this works is that if, if I'm the sort of person that asks the question, what must God do for me, in my mind, I have a, a picture, a, a plan for my life. It's usually quite grand, right? Quite idealistic. And, and much of my religion is spent in trying to ensure that God God will give me this life that I've pictured and planned and desired. So this is the reason why when good things happen to me that fit my plan, I'm very quick to say that, well, look look how God has blessed me. And, you know, in recent times it's become a bit of a meme, but people who have sort of really um, put out there that idea of the hashtag blessed life, you know, uh, it trends on social media and, and what people understand by the term blessed, I'm not sure but but certainly we've seen within, even in our own Christian circles, the way that sure when something good that I like, that fits my plan happens to me, then I'm I'm considered to be blessed. God has blessed me. This approach to religion is, is actually a, an approach which is more a means to an end. My, my making sense of religion is that my religious devotion or my activity in the field of religion actually serves some greater good, at least in my mind. My religion serves my desire, my plans. I, I reduce God within this plan to being the one who must supply me with the various ingredients I need to achieve my grand plans, my grand vision of life the great walk of faith then is what must i do what formula must i unlock to get from god what i want in in this approach god becomes little more than the provider of goods for my life the the butler in the mansion of my grand desires. The question, what must God do for me, is nothing more than an indication of a me-centred religion. Now, I'm going to make an assumption, even though everyone says you shouldn't make assumptions, but I'm going to make an assumption that you've tuned in to listen to this message because you could very well be the, the type of Christian that's thinking, yeah, I, I know people who treat Jesus like a genie, Chris, but, but I'm not one of them. That's not me. You know, I'm, a, I'm a conservative Christian. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a child of the Reformation. I have the five solas tattooed on my shoulder. It's probably those Pentecostals that you're thinking of, Chris. Aren't they the ones who are always going on about being blessed and the the favour of the Lord or being God's princesses or something like that? Well, before we start throwing stones in glass houses, I think it's important that we consider the second question. So the first one was, what must God do for me? The second question which I think defines a major approach to people's understanding of religion in this world today is not what must God do for me, but what must I do for God? What must I do for God? After 44 years of growing up in conservative Christianity and probably about 20 years now of Christian ministry, I've developed an educated guess that many conservative Christians, like I am, live with the continual presence of this low-level anxiety caused by the sneaking suspicion that God doesn't actually really like me very much. I've got all the theology to tell me otherwise. That, um, That in Christ we are forgiven and accepted, that we're robed and embraced as the returned prodigal, that we're standing as as co-heirs with Christ, with his imputed righteousness within. And yet when I lay my head on my pillow at night, reflecting on the failures of another day, I wonder, surely... Surely God can't be pleased with me. And from this place of uncertainty, we develop this question which speaks out of our insecurities, which is what what can I do for God? And that question is shaped not so much by a pure desire for serving him, but often what, what must I do for God to make him like me a bit more? Now, this question doesn't reveal sort of that genie in a bottle mentality. Instead, it reveals that we have a God that needs to be continually appeased in order for bad things not to happen to me. Let me give you a couple of examples of the way this works out in real life conversation. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've said it. I've had such a rotten day. (laughs) One thing after another has just gone wrong. And then I remembered... I forgot to have my quiet time this morning. Here's another one. My year has been such a disaster. Uh, One thing after another has happened. I just can't even believe that it could get much worse. But no wonder, I'm about two months behind in my read the Bible in a year plan. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to binge read and catch up to where I'm supposed to be. Maybe you think that I've made those statements up, but I haven't. And maybe you think that they're a bit extreme and and maybe they are. But to a certain degree, I've said or expressed or I've heard in some way that, Type of attitude working its way through our Christian vocabulary and how we speak about our relationship with God. A type of mentality even where religion is reduced to a list of prerequisites that must be checked off on a regular rhythm to ensure that I feel better about my relationship with God. Maybe it's um, maybe it's a daily quiet time or or prayer. Or volunteering or tithing or attending or evangelism i mean the list is almost endless right but we're sure that if we don't keep up with whatever's on our list then it's going to come back and bite us in the butt something's not going to go well for us and so this question keeps coming up what must i do for god So rather than religion being a means by which I, I stay on the good side of God and keep getting hashtag blessed, we turn religion into a means by which we try and um, appease an intolerant God who, who we think must have a very short fuse. Either way, we've reduced religion to being a means to an end. So the question, what must I do for God... It's also nothing more than a me-centered religion. The two questions are actually either side of the same coin. What must God do for me? Treat genie uh, God like a genie in a bottle. Or what must I do for God? What must I do to appease this frustrated God? Both of them are two sides of the same coin, and that coin is actually about me. I think the place you can see this most clearly illustrated in Scripture is probably from the book of Job. Um, Job, who is a righteous man, loses everything through a series of tragic events. And destitute and grieving, remember, Job's wife advises him, look, just curse God, and die and shortly following that his friends turn up to comfort him the vast proportion of the book really is just this dialogue between job and his friends how they engage and interact backwards and forwards with each other let me try and summarize that conversation in this way Job's friends say, Job, bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. Job replies, well, that can't be true because I'm a good man and bad things have happened to me. I'm innocent, therefore what happened to me is unjust. So then his friends reply again by saying, look, we need to clarify something. God punishes people who do bad things. And he rewards people who do good things. So you need to be honest now and repent, Job. Job replies again to them by saying, I don't think so. And I want a second opinion. I'm going to go talk to God. Now, what's interesting about the concluding chapters of the book of Job is that God never answers Job's questions. Instead, in effect, he says to him, Job, you need to close your mouth, open your eyes and ears, I'm God. That's God's response to him. What does Solomon have to say to how we need to make sense of religion? You have your Bibles? I hope you can read along with me from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible again ecclesiastes chapter 5 starting from verse 1 we're just going to read the first seven verses and leave our considerations there it says this guard your steps when you go to the house of god better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do for they ignorantly do wrong do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before god god is in heaven and you are on earth so let your words be few Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it, because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you. And do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the works of your hands? For many dreams bring futility, so do many words. Therefore, fear God. And Solomon structures his thoughts in these seven verses around three key activities that were pretty normal religious activities in his day and I think we can relate to them to a certain degree as well so he talks about offerings and prayers and vows but I want to simply break down these seven verses into just four observations that Solomon makes about religion in general so this is the first one Solomon asserts quite strongly right from the outset in verse one you can see it approach God with caution approach God with caution. Solomon doesn't begin his reflections with what God can do for us or what we should do for God. He simply begins it with God. Right religion always begins with a right understanding of who God is. Solomon's concern, and I suspect he'd still have it today if he were alive, is that we too often approach God haphazardly. We too often lack a proper appreciation, I think, for his holiness and, and even the severity of God. The utter righteousness, the, the inapproachable light of God's presence. We've taken the image of God as an all-consuming fire and we've wallpapered it with images of Jesus is my BFF. And if you're sort of thinking, hey Chris, lay off on the Old Testament imagery here, we live under the new covenant, right? Then consider what Jesus said in Luke 12 verse 4. He says, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has the authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. His first observation. Approach God with caution. Two he spends quite a bit of time in these seven verses saying better to say nothing and simply stand in God's presence. Better to say nothing and simply stand in God's presence. That sounds a bit like what Job eventually concluded after all of his conversations with his friends and then his questioning of God and God Revealing himself in powerful imagery. Job concludes in Job 42 verse 1. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand things too wondrous for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen. Therefore, I reject my words, and I'm sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. Job came face to face with God. He learnt to approach God with caution. He also learnt that it's best just to sit silently with God. The third thing that Solomon wants to help us grapple with in these seven verses from Ecclesiastes 5 is, <laughs> don't be a fool. God has no time for fools Solomon says. And there are countless ways that we act foolishly before God and with God. So don't be a fool. And the last thing. He simply says, fear God. Fear God. So how do we make sense of religion after all those considerations? And there's two different types of questions that could indicate how we how we have been thinking about religion you know what must god do for me or what must i do for god and and now hearing solomon's considerations and thoughts about the meaningless of religion if we if we don't come to god on his terms how do we make sense of it I think that we can summarise Solomon's ideas and even our own reflections on those two different types of questions that we often ask. I think we can summarise them down into just one single statement. We must make sense of religion on God's terms and not ours. We must make sense of religion on God's terms and not ours. So remember how we defined religion back at the beginning? A particular system of faith and worship which defines how man and God relate. So if we define religion like that, then we have to come to terms with the fact that, that we have to think this through on God's terms and not ours. And that means that we have to grapple with the person of Jesus. Religion without Jesus at its center is meaningless. Any system of faith and worship that seeks to define how man and God relate to one another, that does not have Jesus as the culmination and pinnacle of all things, will not and cannot account for any security that a sinful person like me, or like you, can have with a holy God. In other words, you don't use Jesus to gain what you desire. Instead, we forsake what we desire to cling to Jesus as our only reward. Or We don't use Jesus as simply some type of get out of hell free card or even get a free pass into heaven by flashing out the Jesus card. Jesus is our highest aim and reward. The story in John chapter 4 when Jesus meets the woman from Samaria, she's drawing water from the well. You might remember it. It's worth considering for a moment. John 4 and verse 10 says, Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, Give me a drink? You would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well's deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up from him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said, give me this water that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water again. Go call your husband. Jesus told her, and come back here. Now that question, or that request that Jesus asked rattles the woman, right? So she begins this sort of theological discussion to try and divert will divert away from very uncomfortable conversation. But this diversion gives Jesus an opportunity to reveal something to her that he rarely so explicitly did any other time in his earthly ministry so in verse 19 go down a bit verse 19 sir the woman replied i see that you're a prophet our ancestors worshiped on this mountain but you jews said there's a place to worship is jerusalem jesus told her believe me woman an hour is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem you samaritans worship what you do not know We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he's called the Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Verse 26, Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. You'll rarely find another place in Jesus' ministry where he so explicitly says, I'm the Messiah. I am he. Jesus stands before her, And through the scriptures, he's standing before you today as well. And he presents himself and he says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the living water that wells up from within, satisfying your parched thirst. Jesus is the one who enables true worshippers to approach the Father in spirit and truth. Jesus is the one who offered himself as a sacrifice once for all time. Hebrews 10 tells us in verse 19, "Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh." And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. The old curtain that was dividing Man and God has been torn down in the hours of darkness as the full force of God's wrath crushed his very own son in full payment for the full penalty of our sin. The temple curtain was torn into exposing a way for man and God to once again be in relationship. So let me say it again. Religion without Jesus is meaningless. Religion without the lamb is meaningless. Your hope and your security isn't wrapped up in pleasing God enough for him to either hashtag bless you or to appease him enough in order that he might not be disappointed with you. Jesus is enough. In Christ, you are blessed already, more than you realize. There's nothing more to pursue. And in Christ, you have the approval of God. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. For himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In Christ you are blessed already. There is nothing more to pursue. In Christ, you have the approval of God. So, when Satan comes, and he will, he does. When Satan comes to whisper his lies in your ears, when he comes to accuse you in the night, look to the Lamb. You have nothing more to pursue, you have nothing more to prove. Jesus is enough.